Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zalmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Nathan Kaiser about concussion and dysautonomia. Faces of TBI is a podcast series for survivors by survivors raising awareness about traumatic brain injury one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Good Men Project, and I am author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, available on Amazon. And I also launched the Brain Health Magazine. You can grab your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can also learn more about me and catch any of our previous podcast episodes at facesoftbi.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zalmer. And also don't forget to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Dr. Nathan Kaiser, and he is a chiropractic neurologist specializing in helping people regain function after traumatic brain injuries with a special focus in the integration of the autonomic nervous system. He practices in Chelsea, Michigan, and is an assistant professor for the Carrick Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kaiser. So happy to have you here. Hey there, Amy. Great to talk to you again. <clears throat> yeah, I'm so excited. It's been a couple years. Um, we had you on the summit a few years ago talking um, about dysautonomia. So real thrilled to have you here today on the podcast. And, you know, this topic of dysautonomia, it comes up over and over and over again in my Facebook group. And it's not always coming up in that people recognize what it's called. It's coming up in the symptoms and people telling them, hey, have you ever, you know, researched dysautonomia? So I'm real excited to tackle this topic today. But first, I would love for you to share with our listeners how you came to work in the brain injury community. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. It's not, <laughs> I guess it's not a story I share a lot. Um, I was actually, so it kind of goes back to college. I was uh, in undergrad studying, getting ready to go uh, actually into the field of prosthetics and orthotics. I wanted to build oh, wow. uh, limbs, limbs for folks. Um, you know, that was a time when we were thinking about people coming back from wars and things like that. So that was mm-hmm. kind of where my head was at. Then I had a friend that got really sick and nobody could really figure out why. Um, so I decided in my wisdom that I would try to figure it out as a, as a 20 year old kid and um, <laughs> got on the internet. And back then you'll remember like early days of the internet, it was, there was not a lot there like there is now. No. Um, but I ended up coming across this video of a, uh, of a PBS special that was done on Dr. Carrick um, for, I'm sure a lot of your audience know who he is, but um, he's kind of the, the, the pioneer in the field of chiropractic neurology and, and brain rehab as we know it. And it just had these crazy, three crazy cases that were profiled. Um, people that were like just not supposed to get better and worked with him and, and did great. And I saw that, um, you know, they had to mail it on a VHS. It wasn't you could stream <laughs> it on YouTube or anything. Um, and 
yeah, and at that point, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, so he was a chiropractor, didn't know anything about that, um, but went to chiropractic school, just kind of following whatever he did. And that brought me into the field of, of neuro rehab. And then I was, I was super fortunate to be able to, to work in his lab for three years and, um, and just learned a ton from him. And um, that's kind of brought me to where we are now. And that, that same venture was kind of what brought me into the field of, of dysautonomia is really understanding how, how the brain has to work holistically as a, as a, as a single unit to be able to have the whole thing work together. And anytime you break mm-hmm. away from that, um, that you're just going to bleed energy and cause problems and the place that's going to show up is in the autonomic system. Yeah. And so I guess that's a really good segue into our topic today of dysautonomia. <clears throat> so maybe the first thing we should tackle is what is dysautonomia? Yeah. So, I mean, just keep it very simple it's it's an error or a malfunction in our kind of innate um, autonomic system now our brain doesn't know that it has an autonomic system Um, we we just call it that but it's basically all of these these parts of our function that we don't have to think about all the things that run in the background your breathing rate your ability to pump blood all around your body maintain your temperature digest food all the good stuff that you don't have to even consider uh, just kind of runs on autopilot. And we trust these different centers in our brain to be able to make sure that happens. And it does it in a really, really, really targeted, special kind of way. Um, And when that breaks down, we see symptoms. Um, And Mm -hmm. those symptoms, we kind of classify them as dysautonomia. But I think the important thing to remember is as that word becomes more popular, we start looking for a treatment for dysautonomia when, when the reality is, is it's uh, outside of a genetic uh, problem. Dysautonomia is a, is a secondary problem. It's the thing that shows up because something else happened. And I think that part is, is really helpful to remember, especially for folks that are, that are trying to get better and try to get rid of those symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about some of the symptoms of dysautonomia. Cause like I said, that's what's coming up in my group a lot is people are talking about, wow, do you ever get lightheaded or woozy or, you know, um, I feel like I'm going to pass out. And I remember for me in my first year and a half, well, maybe even longer than that, it took me two and a half years to get to functional neurology. Um, but I remember I thought I was maybe having absent seizures because I would like say walk to our um, meal room in my building, which was probably like a city block away. Like it, it was a decent walk over to the mail room and I would get halfway there and I'd have this sensation. Like I was about to pass out and get like mm-hmm. a little woozy and lightheaded, but then it would pass real quickly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it happened consistently and all the time. And I'm like, what is this? Cause like, I knew what POTS was and that's, you know, like when you stand up and kind of pass out, but I was already halfway to the meal room. So I was like, well, it can't be that because I've been up on my feet now for five minutes. Um, And also the heart rate I know is another issue that a lot of people have. And I I've had a pretty elevated heart rate since before my injury. um, But I know since 
my injury, my heart like will sometimes feel fluttery. Like it'll kind of be like a boom, boom, or um, it just, you know, sometimes I have to sit back and like, is this anxiety? Like, why is my heart doing this? Like, this is weird. Um, So Mm -hmm. why don't we dig into some of those symptoms and what that's telling us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, And first to talk, to kind of speak to what you just said with that anxiety is sometimes it's a, it's like a chicken in the egg kind of a problem because you don't know. Mm-hmm. Generally, if you've had concussion symptoms for a long time, and you can correct me if, if you've had a different experience, but you start to get feedback that maybe it's in your head a little bit. You know, maybe you just kind of need to right. toughen up. Right, and right. So from the, that from, weighs on from you. other doctors. Go, yeah. Exactly. You start to go, well, maybe, maybe I am. Who knows? And then, you know, you get those that autonomic activity that comes in and it actually mimics, it's like a physiological anxiety. It's like your body's anxious without telling your brain it's going to do it. And um, yeah, so those kind of walk together and then you see, you know, what you experience with your heart rate, I think is, is a really common way to see it. Um, just in the sense that I think, that, I think an easy way to think about it is when you have an injury in the brain, right? It creates, so you got injured tissue, which is going to lead to some sort of a malfunction, right? Because those neurons are in charge of something. They have a job. And if they can't do their job correctly, you may be able to adapt for it and can habituate to something different, but it won't be quite perfect. And that machine running kind of in a not perfect way over time uh, can develop symptoms. That's, that's what we see with, with this autonomia. So, if we have a number of those malfunctions occurring, it's kind of like your brain is just overworked. It's got to do more work to do the same job. So to be able to do simple things, you're having to do a lot of work to be able to do more complex things. You're really asking the system to do a lot. So to get up and walk around doesn't usually seem like a super complex activity, but your brain is exercising like crazy. Um, So everybody I think knows, if you were to just stand up and start running right now and just go for a jog, there are certain responses that your body has to allow you to keep oxygen going to your muscles, to your brain, everywhere you need to go to live. Um, so those kind of go with an increased heart rate. Your breathing starts to get a little bit faster because you've got to get rid of some of this carbon dioxide that's building up and your blood vessels dilate. And there's this whole constellation of things that happen. And what we find is that in dysautonomia, we're kind of seeing this response that looks like an exercise response that happens at rest or that happens with very simple things like standing up or doing math homework or looking at a computer screen or whatever the thing is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it is, it's so, I've seen a lot of people who were athletes prior to their injury, not necessarily a pro athlete, just, you know, an athlete, someone who likes to run or lift weights or do boxing or whatever, whatever it is. And they get really frustrated because they can't get back into whatever it was. Let's, let's just take running because that's probably the most common one um, to jog and run. And they can't get back into it because it's like their heart rate is just whacked out and they're out of breath. And, um, you know, also to take into consideration when you're running the visual um, stimulation as well, right, with um, any vestibular stuff you might have going on. Um, so, 
you know, so someone that's experiencing this, someone that, that is a runner and they're struggling to get back into running or whatever sport, um, you know, what, what are some things that you can do to help them um, with that? So first of all, let me, let's make this two part, like explain what's going on with dysautonomia in that running in, instance, and then how you can help that person get back to running. Okay, cool. Yeah. So in a running instance, we find that, so, so first of all, we pretty much know that most people that have prolonged concussion symptoms are going to develop some form of dysautonomia. So even if it's not like a lot of people will, will relate with cardiac problems because we can feel those, but they're, you know, also GI issues, you know, problems yeah. with sleep, problems with headaches, problems with, you know, light sensitivity, um, weird stuff happening with your thyroid, hyper and hypoglycemias, just the crazy fatigue. So like all those things come in, but we really like looking at, at what's going on with the heart. So when, you, when people try to take off and run, we normally think about that as being like a pretty doable task. You can do that from the time you're, you know, a toddler. But when your brain isn't working well, we've got, we've got an energy crisis that happens. So we've got this brain that is working really, really hard to do more simple activities. And when that happens, we see, we know there are kind of three things that happen in dysautonomia, specifically in the brain, um, that are important for blood flow delivery. So the biggest problem we deal with in concussion or, or mild TBI or even moderate and severe TBI is we're having a hard time getting oxygen into the brain in a useful way. Um, so it's going to all the places it needs to go. So if you kind of hang with me for a second, um, if, we, if we've got a problem delivering oxygen to the system, it can happen in, in three main ways. Um, we get uncoupled neurovascular activity. So usually when your brain is active, so like if you're moving your hand, the hand part of your brain is going to get more blood flow than the rest of your brain, which is a super cool, efficient way to operate. Um, so if something happens though, and now when I move my hand, I don't get that same blood flow, those tissues are going to fatigue faster than they would otherwise. So, mm -hmm. so when we have, so this would be a case where if someone has, if we isolated it down to someone having some sort of a, a problem with the sensory system, and you know, those could be your vestibular system, like you linked to, it could be um, a subcomponent of that in the graviceptive system it could be your visual system. You've seen tons of that. It could be, man, you've got this weird thing that's happening in your neck or in your shoulder, or it's like, I don't feel the right side of my body correctly. Um, all of these things are just different sensory instruments. But what we find is that actually the sensory system is the thing that has the most impact on this neurovascular coupling within the brain. It activates these little astroglial cells and they dilate local vessels. People don't care about that stuff. I'm super nerdy about it, but it's really important. So when you think about running, you've taken, you've got this complex activity, right? You're, you're standing up, which puts your brain at a disadvantage because now it's above your heart. And you have to be able to coordinate blood flow upward rather than just letting it go wherever it wants to go. You're moving, so you're creating all this motor activity. You're balancing. You're trying not to tip over. Um, to a degree, you're trying to make sure that your visual system stays stable so that you can stay balanced. 
your inner ear is giving you information about where you are. So you have all these different sensory barrages that are happening and they take a bleed on the system if it's not working correctly. Um, so if you think about trying to fix that, we, we, we think about it in, in a three-step kind of a system so it makes it easier to remember. So we want to isolate and then integrate and then improvise. And what that means is we want to isolate exactly what's causing the brain to have to work too hard that's causing problems with oxygen delivery to the brain, right? Um, and if we can isolate that, can we break it apart and get that to function well again? So in the case of a runner, maybe that means the visual system is just not working real well and we need to do things to clean up that signal so the brain doesn't have to work so hard. And if it doesn't have to work so hard, I'm able to go into kind of the next step, which would be integration. So now I can use my visual system with my motor system so I can, I can walk and move my head and eyes at the same time and it doesn't cause symptoms, which is super cool. I can deliver blood flow effectively. But then at the end of the day, you need to be able to do those things in, in like an improvised environment. You need to be able to go for a run or chase your dog. Or if you're flying a kite and you lose the string like we did the other day, you got to be able to go <laughs> run and chase after it and grab it, right? So you have to be able to do things in the real world. Um, so I think that's the important part is being able to, to figure out the exact thing that's causing a bleed on the system that's causing it to overwork. Fixing that little malfunction, fixing that area and then reintegrating it within normal things it would do so that you can use it in a real world scenario. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know, do you know any statistics? I know it's something like 90% of people who hit their head will have vision problems, right. From disrupting their, dis mm -hmm. um, their vestibular system. Do you know any statistics on dysautonomia? I mean, I feel like almost everyone I meet has the symptoms but has never been diagnosed with it sure well and it's a, it's a it's a tough thing because it's not the problem right it's just like the the symptom syndrome question but um you know we basically know that anybody that's had symptoms for over two months is dealing with an underlying autonomic concern um, right. you know there's mm -hmm. a there was a paper that was done in 2018 um, by miranda's group and it showed that in the people that they surveyed, 70% um, of their post-concussive people uh, had a form of dysautonomia, usually associated with tachycardia, the way that they were, that they were measuring it. So kind of right in your ballpark of what you experienced. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, I think so many people have a lot of these symptoms, right? Like they have the racing heart or they feel that dizziness, like they're going to pass out and they talk to their doctor about it. And I feel like, you know, our traditional doctors really don't understand dysautonomia at all. And sometimes they do get sent to a cardiologist, especially if they're having like that racing heart feeling. Um, and sometimes the cardiologist knows what it is. Sometimes they don't. Um, but I feel like nobody is getting the help they need in that traditional medical system. Um, <clears throat> so if they're having these issues, you know, what do they need to do? I know, you know, you guys in the functional neurology world absolutely know how to work with this. Um, so what do the, what should these people listening who are having these problems, what, what do you recommend to them as a first step? Sure. I think you're absolutely right. I think 
Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's a blame to assign, but I think that we're traditionally the way that that is working out, um, a little bit just behind the curve on being able to, to, be yeah. able to get adequate help. For they folks. don't know what they and, don't know. Uh, some of it comes down to tools. That's it. And, and, you know, there are, there are huge dysautonomia clinics in the world um, with massive waiting lists that uh, are, are really just symptom trackers and symptom, um, symptom chasing types of things. So we, we give them medicine that brings your heart rate down if your heart rate's real high. And if that doesn't work, we try to bring your pressure down and tell you to drink enough water and eat salt and put compression socks on. But the reality is all that does is just like mask your symptoms, keep it under control to a little degree. Um, But I think, I think the general philosophy for, for folks that are dealing with this stuff and just tired of it is to try to figure out what the main cause is. So that's kind of the the overarching thing is you got to figure out what the main thing is that's causing this problem for you. Um, And the good news is there, there are people that are super trained to do that. But as far as um, so we're we're recording this in kind of a weird environment now where people are largely in their homes, mm-hmm. especially some Midwesterners yep. like us. Um, and so there sometimes it's not fully available. Um, so things that I would I would strongly suggest are one, if you do know you've got some of these issues, you know, like Amy would know if she's got a vestibular issue, she's got things she's working on. Keep working on those things and, and get stronger. Uh, isolate the areas that are not working and help to focus on getting them to function better. Um, kind of like if you had a broken arm, you wouldn't just like hop in a whole body cast for a few months and just hope like it all worked out and then get out and then hope everything works. Like you'd, you'd find where the your arm was broken. You'd set the bone, you'd put a cast on it. When it healed, then you'd, go to your physical therapy or do your exercises so that it gets strong again. So it's the same way with your brain. Um, now, if you're at home, things to start considering would be, you've got to be able to help your brain get adequate blood flow again. And a lot of that can be done through sensory activity and activity that stimulates your cardiovascular system. So one of the things that we'll recommend to people in this climate is we will have them just start getting upright and moving. Um, for some of you, that's not going to be the case. Some of you are, you know, you're in the scenario where you get up off the couch and to, to the walk to the refrigerator is too much and you feel like you're going to pass mm-hmm. out. Um, that's more nuanced. That, that's going to come with some more coaching to figure out how to do that. But the general idea of putting your, your cardiovascular system under some stress so that it can adapt to that stress is really important because the more we sit inside and are laying around, the more deconditioned we become, we become, which means we're going to have a harder time being able to get that blood flow back in our head. Um, one of the things that I like to have folks do is, so there's some, some interesting science around the idea of when there's a sweet spot for how much blood flow your brain can tolerate. It's a, it's a closed box, meaning you're, you're in a skull, which means there's, if you've got brain in there and you've got blood and you've got some cerebrospinal fluid if you put more stuff in there there's nowhere for it to go there's no way that the skull doesn't like have a pouch or, or it doesn't expand anywhere to make room for more stuff right so it's a closed it's a closed system so when you're trying to increase blood flow into that area uh, especially with exercise there's this nice sweet spot where at a point that auto regulation will kick in and it actually will take more blood flow through your brain. It'll clean stuff out. 
it'll stimulate um, the interior walls of the vessels and it'll actually make your, your brain more efficient at oxygen usage. But then there's a point where your blood pressure from your body gets too high and your brain just says, shut it down. Uh, it's too high. Too much pressure is coming in and it'll actually constrict the blood vessels. When we constrict the blood vessels in our brain, it means less oxygen gets to all the parts that we want it. If you're trying to heal your brain, you want as much oxygen as possible to get there. Um, so we want to be able to dilate blood vessels. So the way that we can do this is we can have people exercise but just at a low rate. So we might look at it as keeping your heart rate low, somewhere around like the 120 range. But even better than that is to exercise in a way – um, just walking, and if you're having problems with your neck or your hip, um, then you might do something like riding a, a bicycle um, or uh, doing an elliptical, something where your head isn't moving around as much. You'll want to use whatever kind of exercise you can do that doesn't aggravate your other symptoms. Um, so, Amy, you were talking about running was tough for you. That might have been something where in the beginning, just a nice, easy exercise bike where you're not moving your head around a lot might have been a good might have been a good approach. So if you guys mm -hmm. are like Amy, that would have been that would have been good. So just something like that. And then we want to have you exercise at a pace where you can still talk and carry out a conversation like we're having right now. But you would feel generally like it's getting kind of tough to do it, but you could still do it. Um, in that range is about at the point where you're still um, your oxygen and carbon dioxide usage matches what's happening with your breathing and with your blood flow. Um, and then once you break where you can't kind of talk while you're breathing, then we start to see that that decouples and we change the blood flow to the brain a little bit. So just to think about it really simply, if you can exercise and talk at the same time, try to do that as long as you can without symptoms and pick a nice easy time. If you can do it for two minutes, fantastic. If you can do it for 20 minutes, great. Um, and then, just making sure that it doesn't cause any symptoms at all. And then just add a little bit to it every day. Um, most people that don't have heart rate monitors and things like that, it's a little bit tougher. But if you can do, you can use um, like your iPhone or if you use a Fitbit or some kind of tracker, another good way to do it is to just track your steps. Um, so you're exercising at that pace. You know, I'm going for a walk around the block and I can still talk. I'm just talking to the birds, whatever the thing is. And, um, and then you just count your steps until you start to get tired or you start to feel like you might get symptomatic. And then you stop before you get symptoms and then just mark however many steps that was. And then tomorrow after a really good night's sleep and making sure you're breathing well, then you make sure tomorrow you just try to do a hundred more steps than you did the day before. And pretty soon you'll be able to have a little more integrity in that system and be in and have some strength in, in oxygen delivery in the brain. And that oxygen delivery in the brain um, is really the foundation to be able to rehab it. It's really hard to do neurorehabilitation in a system that doesn't have oxygen, right? It'd be crazy. It'd be like trying to run a marathon while holding your breath. It just, it, it's not an intelligent <laughs> way to, to try to do this. Um, so if you're, if you're thinking and you're really honest with yourself and you're saying, you know, I really want to get better, I have aspirations. I want to go find somebody that can help me with this, but right now I can't. Can't get on an airplane, can't travel, but you can work on this. And by working on this, you give your brain a leg up to be able to get a little bit stronger so that when you go and do more specific exercise, it has a tolerance to it. And those pathways that maybe aren't working as well 
can start to uptake more oxygen in a better way and be able to be more resilient in that, in that rehab procedure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you talked about just starting slowly and adding a little more in each day. And I think that's often a frustration for those who were active, you know, before their injury. I think that's often a, a source of frustration that they can't just jump right back into it. And, you know, the reality is this is a marathon, not a sprint, um, recovering yeah. from a brain injury. Um, and excuse me, my allergies are in full gear right now. Um, so, you know, I, I understand that frustration and, you know, for me, I was really, I was really hurting those first 18 months. So I knew it wasn't realistic for me to get back into doing anything, you know, like running and whatnot. Um, But for others, they feel somewhat okay physically, right? And then they try to get back into um, running or basketball, you know, volleyball, whatever it is. And so it's a frustration. And You know, what advice do you have for those people who were very active before? And and it is, it's frustrating. Okay, I can only get in 2,000 steps today, you know. Yeah. Um, what what advice do you have for the, that, that specific demographic? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, and it, and it shows how in tune you are with, with the folks you're talking to because that, I mean, that's it, right? Because you feel, like, kind of okay, and then you, you go do a little bit of exercise and it's like the wheels mm-hmm. fall off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would say, you know, I've had people, um, I, I've been lucky. We, we see, um, we tend to see some people that have um, some interesting jobs. You know, they get, they get paid to play sports and do fun things like that uh, at a high level. And I've had plenty of people in that situation that come from um, trying to return to, to sport after a concussion and, you know, trying to get back on the ice or trying to get back on the field and they're working hard and just getting these crazy headaches and all this stuff. And then we'll get them. And honestly, they might do two minutes of work. They might do two minutes of like light cardio work. And then we reach the peak and we measure it really closely. So we know when it happens and we just make them stop. And and they are, you know, slack jobs. They're like, (laughs) what what are we we doing? What are we doing? We'll just be patient. And, you know, within a couple of days, you can take them from two minutes to, you know, to high intensity again. Um, so I think just, just like you said, remembering that six months is going to pass no matter what you do. You have a choice to be able to do a little bit every day. And at the end of that six months, you may end up with just a whole different life, like a whole different ability to do things. Or you may be really frustrated because you've kind of started and stopped and, and not really been able to carry it out. Mm-hmm. So what you said was just being able to do a little every day, not pushing it too far, and just recognizing that it's all adding up. It's like compound interest. It's just adding up in your account. And the more it's able to add up, the more you can do tomorrow. If you're already in an energy crisis, your brain cannot get enough oxygen to operate correctly and you're fatigued, you're dizzy, you're lightheaded when you stand up, you know, you can't make it through the day without feeling like your eyes are going to blur out and you just want to like pass out and cry a little bit. If you're already there, it doesn't make sense to try to, no amount of pushing harder is going to make you heal faster. 
So we have to be able to instead try to be able to build up your ability to heal by taking things off the plate, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think you really hit it right there with you just can't push through it. And I think especially athletes. They're used to pushing through it. Um, I know I interviewed a high school, a high school gal. Well, she's in college now, but she was in high school when she had her um, volleyball and a basketball concussion and it totally took her out of the game. Right. And she's like, I'm used mm-hmm. to being able to just push through an injury. You know, she's had ankle injuries mm-hmm. and knee injuries and shoulder injuries and this, she could not push through it. And I think that's such a key because I, so many, so many of us, I mean, even me, I'm by no means an athlete, but I am used to just pushing through it, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, even when I'm really sick, I push through it and get the work done. Right. But this brain injury stopped me in my tracks. It's a huge frustration for many, um, yeah. and not having that ability to be able to push through it. And, and I think being able to understand why you can't push through it, right? Like your, your brain isn't working right. Your, your oxygen's not getting to your brain in a way that it needs to. Um, you know, I hope that that helps somebody listening today understand why they can't just push through it. And, you know, I think often we're also told by outsiders, you know, friends, family, people that knew us before our injury, you know, they, they tell us, we'll just push through it, suck it up, you know? And it's like, you can't like this, like until you have experienced a brain injury, you really can't understand it. Right. And so I think right there, you really, you really hit it with that statement. Awesome. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a weird paradox because grit (laughs) gets us through so many things and there's even an element where you've got to have some grit to get through your brain injury, Mm -hmm. but it's in, it's in long-term persistence. It's not in the, like, I'm just going to beat it today. Um, You know, the beat it today stuff comes from by just making these little tiny, tiny, tiny pathways in your brain. It's, it's just getting that short circuit to stop. And if you can do that, it's, it's like your energy compounds itself and you're able to like, Oh man, like I can actually do some stuff now. And then the activity and the running and the, you know, the energy and the, the life start to come back into you. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is, and I'm in the same boat. I mean, I have stories for a different time, but yeah, you just try to push through it and all it does is just kind of beat you into the ground more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dr. Kaiser, thank you so much for being here today and just sharing this important topic with our listeners. And I'd like to just wrap up by asking, you know, do you have any final thoughts of advice for anyone listening um, who it, who thinks that they may actually have dysautonomia? Maybe this is the first time they've put those pieces together. Well, if that is the case, I'm, I'm super glad that this was helpful then. Um, Cause I think recognizing that that is a problem goes a long way without, without it, folding in dysautonomia into your, your treatment approach, you're just not going to be able to get the result that you want to get. So I think that's step one. Um, there are plenty of resources. We've got some, some checkers and things with our website where we can kind of give you a, a clue of what's going on with that. Um, but if you've got dysautonomia, now is the time. Not just to look for don't type in dysautonomia cure. There's not one. It's, it's figuring <laughs> out what is, what is your – individual problem and why is that showing up 
as your autonomic system, that automatic system of your brain mm-hmm. is not yeah. able to compensate. It's just working too hard. It's exercising when you're sitting still. Um, so figuring that out is really the big question. And then as you're working through figuring that out, figuring, learning how to, to kind of get back up and slowly just 1% at a time, get a little bit better every day and reach out to people uh, in Amy's tribe. Um, she, she's got a wealth of physicians at, at her fingertips that are, that are trained to look at these things in a different way and, um, and ultimately just look at it in a very specific kind of, uh, kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so for anyone listening, I do have in the show notes, a link to your website It is drkaiser.com and that's D R K E I S E R.com. Um, and, what is your Instagram handle? I know you post a ton of great information on your Instagram page. Thanks. Yeah, we sure, especially right now, we're trying to really give people ideas for things yeah. that they can do at home. Um, so you can find me at doc, D-O-C, Kaiser, K-E-I-S-E-R. And if you go to either the website or that Instagram, we, we did a, a PDF for mm-hmm. folks just recently. It's the five mistakes that um, slow down concussion recovery. And a lot of mm-hmm. what we just talked about is kind of encapsulated in there in a more simple way. Awesome. Um, so if you want to go download that, that can be super helpful and just kind of give you some direction, things you can start doing now, um, even if you don't have the availability to go see someone. Awesome. Well, definitely check that out, drkaiser.com or docKaiser on Instagram. So, again, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your time with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I love it. And it's so good to talk to you again, Amy. We appreciate it. Yeah. Great to connect. Appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you everyone for listening. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. And just another reminder, I do have the link to his website in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. And another reminder to check out Amy's TBI tribe on Facebook to connect with other caregivers and survivors. Um, And also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And just thank you all so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's show. Thank you for being part of my journey. And I will see you guys all in the next episode. Have a great day, everyone. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.